All right, so thank you guys for coming tonight. Um, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 7. And tonight, so chapter 7 seems kind of weird because it's where of where it's positioned. It's sort of like awkwardly shoved in between chapter 6, which talks about the first six of the seven seals, and then chapter 8, which talks about the seventh seal. And so it's kind of like this weird, this weird interruption in the middle of the story. But it, this is intentional because this is one of three interludes that we see in the book of revelation one of three points where it breaks up whatever is happening in order to explain what's happening with the saints what's happening with god's people in that moment um specifically the one tonight in chapter seven is trying to explain where the saints are during the events of chapter six so in chapter six last week we talked or two weeks ago now we talked about how in chapter six, we saw the first six seals being broken. We saw, you know, all this destruction happening. We saw heaven and earth being destroyed. We saw all of these crazy things happening. And so in that moment, it's like John is taking his pause from the action to say, Hey, this is, this is where the saints were when that was happening. Like this is happening alongside of Revelation chapter six. Um, so, and again, last week we talked about the end of heaven and earth. And so this is naturally just Jesus revealing to John, like, Hey, it's, it's okay. Like this is where the saints are. This is where you guys are. This is where this is where you're going to be when all of this happens. So it's okay. Don't freak out. And then we can move on to the next thing. And one of the things that's great about this is that at the very end of chapter six, it asks this question about who can stand. Um, it talks about all this destruction, all of these things being destroyed. The the whole earth is coming apart. And it ends by asking who can stand. And so chapter seven seeks to answer that question that's asked. So starting in Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 1, it says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel descending or ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from, from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And so look, this is a lot of numbers, a lot happening here, but essentially this chapter 7 splits up into two parts. We have the first part, which we just read, which is all about the saints being sealed. It's the sealing of the saints. It's this whole section where you're just talking about how the saints are sealed, why they're sealed, all of this. Then there's the second part where the saints worship God for sealing them. So there's this natural progression of salvation and thankfulness that we see that happens alongside of each other. And so just to be clear, like I said earlier, these events don't happen after Revelation chapter 6. They're not happening after the end of the world. This is happening alongside the, the breaking of the first six seals and the end of the world and all of these things that we talked about. Essentially, this is showing us the position of the saints during the end of the world. And so it starts off by seeing, by we see these angels kind of coming down in the midst of all of this and they're, 
they're standing at the four corners of the earth, which, you know, obviously we know the earth isn't flat. This just means that they are surrounding the earth and they're essentially holding back all of the death and destruction and the wrath of God that's coming to the earth. And so the first thing that we see here is that God is sovereign over the harmful forces of this world. God is sovereign over the harmful forces of this world. What is being described here is something called a divine passive. Essentially, God himself is not the one that is going to destroy the world himself, but he is allowing it to happen by, by commanding the angels first to hold it back and then by telling them, hey, you can let it go now. You know, this is the wrath of God being poured out on the world, but he's not the one enacting it. He's allowing these angels to hold it back and then, and then allow it to come in. But what this shows us is that he is responsible for all of this happening, but he's not actively doing it. He's waiting for all of the saints to be sealed before he unleashes his destruction from heaven. The other day, someone asked me, they said, hey, why, why, why doesn't God just kill Satan? Like he clearly is powerful. He clearly could do it. Why doesn't he just kill him and, and just be done with it? But what we see is that all throughout scripture is that it's not that he can't, it's just that he chooses to allow evil and sin to persist in this world so that he can be glorified up until the time when he destroys all wickedness and all sinfulness and all evilness and then creates a new earth where there is no sin and evil. One day he's going to destroy all of it and just leave us to inherit this new heaven and new earth that he's going to create. The other point we get from this passage is not about what God allows, but about what he does. See, God actively protects his people. God actively protects his people. That's the next point that we see here. He commands these angels to hold back the destruction for the sake of his people. He commands him. He says, hey, you guys hold this back. Do not let them be destroyed. Do not let any of this happen until I have sealed all of them, until I have finished my, my, my sealing of them and so that my wrath can be poured out onto the earth. Because he knows that him sealing his people is the only way that they will be saved. It's the only way they will be spared from all the wrath and destruction and death that is coming. What we have here is this amazing promise that God will always protect us. It's that he will always prevent us from anything from happening to us that wasn't part of his plan. And it's just a reminder that every single day we don't, we don't even know what he's holding back from coming down on us. We don't even know what he's saving us from every single day, but we know that he is good and that he continues to do so. Then we move into this description of all the tribes that are saved. Um, and we could talk about why certain tribes are mentioned instead of others and get into all of this, but I don't think that's what's important for our context. What is important for our context is the promise given here that God does save his people and that he seals them. He saves them and he seals them. The number given here is not a literal number of the people that he's going to save. You may have heard before about how Jehovah's Witnesses believe that a certain number of people are going to experience salvation and only those people can be saved. This is where they get that number from. And this is, let's just be clear, this is not literally the number of people that are going to be saved. I've also heard a number of Christians who try to combine different types of theology and they say that, well, this is the amount of people that are going to be saved directly by God, and then they have to go witness everybody else and tell them all about the gospel. But what we need to understand is that this number wasn't meant to be a specific number of people that are, that are going to be saved. This just represents a great multitude. Like This represents the fact that God is going to save many people when he didn't have to, and he probably shouldn't have saved 
any one of them. This number is symbolic and it, it represents just like how the seven churches represent the universal church. This 144,000 represents every single person who would ever come to faith in Christ. This represents every person that would be saved. This is a reminder that God can save as many or as few people as he wants to. And yet he chooses to save many. We see this, this perfect round number here, 144,000, that represents the fact that he has already chosen the perfect number of people for salvation and he will seal them for the day that he is coming back. This is him sealing his people for judgment, for salvation and preparing them for the coming judgment. See, judgment, what we learn here is that judgment is destruction for the wicked, but it is hope for the righteous. Judgment is destruction for the wicked, but hope for the righteous. Then we move into the second half of this passage, verses 9 through 17. And it's in this part here that we, we move from this number being 144,000 to suddenly it's a great multitude. So starting in verse 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So here what we see is this, this fulfillment of the things that have already been prophesied already. We see this great multitude that's coming before the throne and before the Lamb. It's coming before Christ. And these people are worshiping Him. They're praising Him. And it says they came from every tribe and language and nation. If that sounds familiar to you, it should. What this is, is the fulfillment of the Great Commission. This is people from every nation coming to stand before Christ and to bow before Him and to worship Him. They have palm branches in their hands, just like the palm branches they lay before Christ as He entered Jerusalem. They are clothed in white, showing that they've been purified in the blood of Christ. And they come to him and they give credit where it's due. They're coming to him and they're like, this isn't, we're not standing before you because of anything that we've done. We're standing before you because of everything that you have done on our behalf, because of everything you have done for us. They praise God for their salvation. They acknowledge that he is the reason that they can stand before him. And I love this because this causes these heavenly beings, these, these beasts and the, and the angels and the elders and all these people standing around the throne who have been here, who have been praising God, they hear the voices of the people. They hear them crying out to God and they all fall down and begin to praise him and say, they start naming these attributes of God, these things that they're ascribing to him. And I love this because it shows us 
This just gives us this glimpse into what eternity could look like for us. This incredible praise of God, this praise that we're moving each other to worship God. We're moving the angels and the beasts and the elders and every single living being to, na- to kneel down before God and to worship him. We see that they, that they are all glorifying God and giving each other more reasons to pray, more reasons to praise him. And they're experiencing the most joy that they could possibly experience. And it's all thanks to God. John goes on to say that one of the elders described them as those who have faced great tribulation and come out the other side, not because they worked extra hard or because they did better than everybody else, but because they were sealed by God. He is the one who sustains us. He is the one who gives us strength and power to, to persevere. Their clothes, it says, were made white by his blood. They were sealed by him. And see, we know that we can survive whatever tribulations we face in life, not because of what we do, but because of what he has done for us. And so this shows us the sealing power of Christ and that he, he's washed them in his blood and he has sealed them. The God of the universe has sealed them. And that shows us that the seal can never be broken because it is God who seals them. Only he can break it. And he promises them that he will never leave them or forsake them. It says, it even says here that, the, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every sorrow that we've ever experienced, every hurt, every pain, every single bit of it will be wiped away and he will bring us to a place of joy and a place of completion. A joy and a completeness that we can never experience anywhere else or in any other way. So now let's talk briefly about the different views on the tribulation here, because uh, it, it brings up the great tribulation here. So let's briefly talk about different views on the tribulation. Um, so there's three main ones that we see. Uh, we see pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. Okay, so we see the first one is pre-trib, the pre-tribulation view. Um, this is just the view that. A lot of you guys have probably heard before it. There's going to be a rapture that happens and that Jesus is going to come back. He's going to, he's going to take his people and remove them from this earth. Then there's going to be a seven year tribulation, specifically seven year tribulation. And then he's going to come back and take everybody else and destroy the rest of this world. Um, often they would think that they would teach that this number, this 144,000 is a different number than a great multitude. Um, they would say, Hey, the 144,000, um, that's those who, you know, are sealed beforehand. And then there's the great multitude, these people who, who come through the great tribulation. They come out the other side and they've decided because of the tribulation, hey, we're going to follow God now. Um, so that's essentially the pre-tribulation view. If you remember any of the views that we talked about back when we started this, this is exclusively held by futurists. It's people who believe that there is a coming millennium, a coming um, that, that all these events are going to happen in the future. There's a coming tribulation. All this is yet to happen. Um, second view is mid-trib or mid-tribulation. Uh, essentially, they believe that um, there is a, once again, a, a period of seven years, and that's this great tribulation, um, and it's split into two periods of three and a half years, exactly. So right in the middle of that, after three and a half years, God comes in, saves his people, and in the last three and a half years, is where things get really bad and the earth is destroyed. Um, they also typically refer to this as Daniel's 70th, 70th week. Um, if you read the book of Daniel, there's this 
there's this point in the middle of his prophesying about the end times when he talks about his 70th week. And it's very similar to what we see in chapter 6 of Revelation, where there's just all of this death and destruction, all these bad things are happening. And so they're like, oh, that must have been talking about the Great Tribulation, essentially what they would say. Then there's post-trib or post-tribulation. And that's essentially just the view that there is some period of tribulation that could be from the from the time that Jesus ascended into heaven to the end of the earth. It could be just a period in the past that's already happened. But needless to say, and it could be a period of seven years, but the bottom line is there's some period of, of tribulation. And then at the end of that, Christ is going to come back and, and to his people. And that is the second coming that we would that we read about in scripture. Um, so because of the view that we're taking with this whole study, we're, we're exclusively looking at this through a post-tribulation view. Like this is something that's happening that has either already happened or that is happening now. Like we would consider that we're living through this great tribulation now. And that at some point Christ is going to come back and save all of his people from all of this destruction and bloodshed that we talked about in chapter six. So, Essentially, what happens is, is the reason that people see this whole seven-year Great Tribulation, we'll talk about it a little bit more as we get into later chapters, talking about the seven years and all that. But here, specifically, because of where it says, where the elder says to him that these are the people who have come out of the Great Tribulation, they're like, oh, well, that clearly he's referring to some specific event. Clearly, he's referring to the breaking of the seven seals. You know, this is this is where the tribulation starts, and it's that's that's the event that he's talking about, as opposed to just all of life. Um, and so look, the bottom line is it doesn't really matter what you believe about the tribulation. What matters is what you believe about your standing in the great tribulation. Will you be destroyed with the rest of the world or are you sealed by something greater than this world? Is this something that, that you were able to withstand because of your own power? You were able to withstand because of Christ's power in you. See, the bottom line of this passage and the most important thing that we could grasp from this is that those who trust in Christ will receive everything he has promised and more. Those who trust in Christ will receive everything that he has promised and more. That's the good news that we have is that all these promises here, the fact that we will hunger no more, we will thirst no more, the sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. The fact that all day we will be before the throne of God serving him, that he will shelter us in his presence. All of these amazing things that we read here at the end of this passage, this is all true for us and more than we could possibly imagine. Not only is there the glory and riches and honor and all of this stuff that we have waiting for us in eternity, but there's more. There's stuff that we can't even imagine. It's not even laid out for us. And he just wants to, to throw it all onto us, to lavish it on us, to, to give us as much of it as we can take so that we can continue to glorify him more and more. And the greatest gift of all that we that we receive is that we get to be in his presence and the fullness of joy and happiness and love. Everything that we long for here on this earth, that those all feelings will all be completely fulfilled in his presence when we are there with him. Those of us who trust in Christ, we, we will receive everything that he has promised and so much more. We can look to the coming judgment with assurance and hope. We can look forward to destruction of the wicked. Our, our enemies and those who enact just, injustice on others will be judged. Those who persecute the church will be destroyed. We who are in Christ will be saved. The end times can be a scary subject, but there is something, but it is something that also provides hope for the believer. 
hope in knowing that one, we have the opportunity now to live for eternity, to do the things that will matter for the rest of time. But two, we have this great reminder that one day all the evil in this world will be cleansed and destroyed and we will be left with just, just us and Christ. And that's all we need. All of our evil and our selfish desires and our sinfulness will be cleansed from us. We won't have to fight with our flesh anymore. Instead, we'll just be able to pursue Christ openly with everything that is in us. It's the one thing that we are created to do that we're going to get to enjoy forever. That's why I love this passage. I love this, this intermission here where, where Jesus kind of takes his time out to say, hey, I know that all of this death and destruction, that can be alarming, that can be frightening, that can be scary. But here's the promise that awaits you who trust in me. Here's the promise that awaits the saints, everybody who's following Christ. Here's the good news. So that you don't have to fear this other stuff anymore. And that's something that we can remember, that we have these incredible promises awaiting us. Now let's pray. God, you are so good and righteous and holy. God, I thank you so much that, that we have your promises here, that, that your promises to us are not only good and abundant, but that they are all true, that they are all going to be applied to us, that we can trust in all of them. They are trustworthy and they are good. God, I thank you that you have given us such a picture of hope for the future, of hope for our, our own lives where we where we know that we can follow you and that we can trust you no matter what happens to us here because there is still a future glory awaiting us. God, I thank you so much for moments in your word like this where you remind us who we belong to and who we are in you, where you remind us that despite all of the things that go wrong in this world and everything that we see around us that's bad, despite the tribulations that we experience here, despite all the bad things and the suffering that we endure, that you are still good, that you are still on your throne and you are sovereign above it all and you have a good plan for us. God, help us to walk in that today. Help us to live in light of this future that you have promised us. Help us to be bold and help us to live without fear. God, you are so good and righteous and holy. And I pray all of this in Christ's holy and precious name, amen.